My wife Shannon and I are coming up fairly soon on 15 years of marriage. I know that is more than some, it is less than others. It's been a great 15 years, uh, but like many couples, we've had challenges and struggles. You know, you go to premarital counseling and they tell you, here's some things that may cause struggles in your relationship. So finances may cause you a struggle. And like many couples, we've had periods of time where that's been a struggle or communication may be a struggle and we've had periods of time where that's been a struggle or the in-laws may be a struggle and we've had periods of time certainly where that's been a struggle. Uh, One they did not tell us about when we got married was that you may get married and in the first year discover that your wife doesn't care for Mexican food and uh, that may pose a serious challenge to your relationship. How do you walk through this problem, this speed bump. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background. I grew up in a family uh, that loved Mexican food. We didn't eat out a whole lot, uh, but when we did, my brothers and I would lobby hard for our parents to go to whatever the local Mexican restaurants were, and so chips and salsa and tacos and burritos, enchiladas, all of those things were woven well into the fabric of our childhood, and we emerged healthy and whole and well-adjusted. Uh, On the other hand, when I got married, uh, Shannon was much more inclined toward American food. So a good burger and fries was her thing. And I don't have a problem with burgers and fries. It's just that I more wanted Mexican food. And so I would ask, uh, maybe tonight we could go to this Mexican restaurant. And uh, about one out of every seven or eight times, she would acquiesce. And we'd go there. But over the years, I was persistent. And I continued to press my case until one time we happened to find a Mexican restaurant that she enjoyed. She liked it and we left there after eating and she said, I liked that place. I could eat there again. And I thought, this is my chance. So from then on, every time we were going out, I would suggest this place and uh, the ratio of her accepting it went up, you know, two times out of seven, three times out of seven. And I'm proud to say today that she'll choose Mexican food over other forms of cuisine. Thank you. Even to this day. Now, why do I tell that story? Well, (laughs) that's right. Uh, Supernatural transformation is possible, right? How do we change? How do we change? We change often when we enter into relationships with other people. If you think about the significant changes in your life, in your perspective, in your actions, in your attitudes, it probably is because you encountered another person who helped you change. Maybe it was through a romantic relationship. Maybe you've seen a college guy, for example, who says, I hate Valentine's Day and I hate all of that Cupid stuff. And then he meets the one. And all of a sudden he's stopping by the side of the road to pick up wildflowers and bouquets. He's watching Hugh Grant movies and all of these things because he met the one and it transformed his perspective. For those who perhaps struggle with racism, maybe an encounter with somebody of another race changes their perspective and how they think. And in one small instance in my own marriage, that's an illustration with Mexican food, how Shannon's perspective was changed. I could list 20 others in which my perspective was changed by being around her. Our perspectives and attitudes change when we encounter other people. That is nowhere 
more true than when we encounter God. Throughout the course of the summer, we've been talking about theophanies and theophany is really just a big word for an encounter with God. And throughout the Bible, you have these stories of men and women who met God either face to face or they saw his glory or they heard his voice or they had a vision of God. And so we've talked about Moses and Isaiah and Daniel and John the Apostle and all of these men and women who encountered God. And one of the things you see is that when people encounter God, they are transformed. Often they fall on their face in fear and they get up and their life is never the same. You don't see anybody encounter the presence of God and then stand up and go, Schlotzkis, it doesn't happen. You don't see anybody encounter the presence of God And go, all right, when are we going to wrap this thing up? I've got another appointment. When people encounter God's presence, they're changed. Because of the grace of God, because of the power of God, people aren't the same. We're going to look at Acts 9 this morning and we'll see this principle fleshed out in the life of Saul, who we know as Paul. He has an encounter with the presence of God that flips him around 180 degrees instantaneously from the direction he was headed. From a man who hated Jesus, who hated Christians, who persecuted them with all he had. To a man who was willing to experience persecution and suffering and death for the name of Jesus Christ. He went from a man whose mission was to destroy the church to a man whose mission was to build it because of an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And as we look at the life of Paul, and as we look at how God transformed him, here's the question I want us to leave with this morning. Do you and I believe that when we encounter Jesus Christ, he has the power to transform us? to transform our perspective about life, to transform the way we view ourselves, even our very sense of identity, to transform our mission. Do we believe that he has the power to transform? Not only that, do we believe that he has the power to transform us and then we can take Jesus out of this room and see him transform the lives of those around us? That when we come in here, we have the opportunity as we worship, as we hear from the word of God, to meet him, to see him, and to be changed. Is that true in your life? Is it true in my life? We're going to see in Acts 9 how God totally flips Saul around because he's that strong, that powerful, and that merciful and gracious. So let's look at Acts 9. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. 
And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The first thing that God provides to Saul through Jesus is this. He provides him with a whole new perspective about his life. When we meet Saul in chapter 9, here's what he's doing. He is headed to Damascus, and he has a letter in his hand from the high priest so that he can go to the synagogue in Damascus and drag out any Christians, not just the men, but also the women, and he's going to drag these Christians out, have them tried, have them put in jail, and maybe even killed. Now, in order to understand what's going on, you need to go back a couple of chapters to the first time that we see Saul in the book of Acts. Where do we first see him? Well, if you remember, we first see him at the execution of Stephen, the very first martyr in the book of Acts. And as Stephen is being executed, he's being executed by the Jewish leaders of his day. Why? Because he is proclaiming Jesus. As Stephen's being executed, there's a guy standing by. And it says there's this young man named Saul, a zealous young member of the council. And you know what he's doing? He's standing by. And it says he's holding their coats. See, Saul was the type of guy that said, you know, I hate Jesus so much that even if I don't have the station and authority and privilege yet in the council to pick up a stone and throw it at Stephen, just let me do something. Just let me hold the coats for those who are. He is an apprentice persecutor. It's the first time we see him. Who is this guy? That he hates Jesus so much, that he hates the church so much and wants to destroy it. Why? What is his motivation? It helps to get a little bit into his motivation and you see some of that in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that is according to the law of Moses, he was circumcised right when he was supposed to be to indicate that he is a believer ultimately in the covenant God gave to Abraham. He is one of God's people, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. That is, Benjamin is where the first king of Israel emerged from, first king of Israel named Saul whom our Saul is probably named after, of the tribe of Benjamin, a prominent tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, my parents were not just Jewish. They were Hebrew Jews who spoke the Hebrew language. They weren't Hellenistic Jews. They were pure and they followed the law. And I came from them. As to the law of Pharisee, a Pharisee is a way of saying one who believed in the purity of the commandment. We find out throughout the Bible, that he is a follower of Gamaliel, who is known as the father of Pharisaism. Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish teachers of the first century. Paul is a disciple of Gamaliel, and he believes in the absolute purity of the Jewish law. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You need to understand where he's coming from. This is a man who believes that approval before God is found in keeping the law that was given to Moses. That's who this guy is. His whole way of life is founded under the presupposition that if I do the law, God will approve of me. If I do what is right, God will approve of me. And so he orients his whole life around the regulations and trappings of the law of Moses. So why does he hate Jesus? Because Jesus poses a threat 
not only to his way of life, but Paul believes, Saul believes, to the whole nation of Israel. Because Jesus came along and he said, no, the way you receive approval before God actually is by faith, by trusting in me. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? If you want to be approved of by God, your righteousness has to do what? It has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, Pharisees, you aren't good enough. Why? Because you are sinful. And what you need is the intervention of God in your life to forgive you, to make you acceptable before God. And so Jesus hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. Those who are despised by his society because he believes God can even reach the sinner. And so Paul's way of life is threatened by the teaching of Jesus and by his followers. If Jesus is the Messiah, everything Paul believes crumbles to the ground. And so he persecutes Christians. Now you need to realize also Damascus is a six day walk from Jerusalem. This isn't an afternoon walk in the countryside. Some Christians had fled Jerusalem to Damascus after the execution of Stephen to escape persecution. And Saul says, no, we can't even let them go to Damascus and set up shops. So he gets a letter. He travels six days, halfway through that six-day period. He's on the road to Damascus. A light shines. There's a loud voice and he falls to the ground. And what he hears is Saul. Saul says his name twice. Why are you persecuting me? No doubt this was a scary moment for him. And he asks the question that I think he probably already knows the answer to. Uh, Who are you? I'm Jesus. The one you're persecuting. And everything changes for him. Because if Jesus is alive, then everything his followers have been saying is true. And Paul's whole understanding of the world has to change. He says, you get up, you go on into Damascus, but you're not going to persecute Christians there. You're going to wait. And I'll tell you what to do. He's so floored, he, he can't see for several days. He can't eat or drink. And he goes and he waits. This is a radical change in perspective. Imagine for a moment that you were to walk into Starbucks this afternoon, sit down with your coffee and you look over and you see Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft on a Mac. What would you think? What happened in that man's life to affect such a radical change? That would be astounding. It would be unheard of. It would be unbelievable. But it's small compared to the change that Saul experiences. He has an entirely new perspective from this point on, and for the rest of his life, he will preach that Jesus is risen from the dead. Go read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime, and what you'll see is that Paul's belief in Jesus is rooted in the fact that he's alive. And I saw him. And as a result... I know that salvation is not found in good works, but in the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. And it's a 180 degree turn in his perspective. 
Do you and I believe that God, when we encounter him, has the ability to transform our hearts and the hearts of those around us to a radically new perspective, a radically new way of thinking, not because of what we do, but because of his power? Had a friend in high school who was probably your typical high school and then early college type of young man. His world centered around his own pleasure around girls and drink and whatever it may be. And and everything he thought of and everything he wanted to do and everything he talked about was all about how he could please himself. And I remember thinking that man is as far from God as they come. Yet we had another friend who continued to invite him to events and to churches where he heard the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and she was persistent and over time the spirit began to work on his heart and somewhere around our freshman year in college he believed in Jesus. And I see him now on Facebook. In fact, saw a photo this morning of his nighttime prayers with his little daughter as he leads her to know the savior that he met. And this man that I thought was so far away was revolutionized by an encounter with Jesus. And his perspective is different about his marriage, about other people, about his family, about his life. That's what an encounter with Jesus Christ does for Saul. Do we believe that the grace of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are that powerful to transform our perspective? Gives him a new perspective, but then goes even further and provides for him a new identity. Look at verses 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he had seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me. So that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up. And was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Jesus appears now to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go and find this guy and welcome him into your circle, into the church. He's praying that you're going to come. You need to go and heal his eyes and pray for him. And Ananias, much like I probably would, goes, um, just hold on just a second. I'm not sure. God, if you remember who this man is, he's not a nice man. In fact, the whole reason he's here, I even know why he's here. I can tell you his itinerary. He is here to destroy the church. He is a hater of Christians. And Jesus says to Ananias, nope, you go. 
because I have chosen him no longer to be a persecutor. That's no longer how he will be known, but he will be known as my instrument to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the sons of Israel. And he, like you, Ananias, will suffer for my name. And so Ananias gets up and he goes. And he tells him, Saul, you have a new identity as a child of God. You're going to be filled with the spirit and do the work of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. The next time we see Saul after chapter 9 is in chapter 13, as he begins his first missionary journey with Barnabas. Halfway through chapter 13, it mentions, now Saul, who was also called Paul, went out. And from then on out, chapter 13 forward in the book of Acts and all the way through the rest of the New Testament, he's no longer called Saul, he is called Paul. Now, there's not a a great deal of difference and significance between these two names. The only real difference is this. Saul is a Hebrew name. And Paul is the Greek equivalent. But for the rest of his life, he goes by Paul. I don't think there's necessarily anything mystical about that, except this, that previously this man who was identified by what? The Jewish law went by his Jewish name. And now he goes by Paul. Why? To identify with the Gentiles who need to hear the name of Jesus Christ. Because his identity is no longer as Saul the Jew. It is as Paul the follower and proclaimer of Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong. He does not drop his Jewishness. But instead his primary identity now is as a follower of Jesus. And his identity changes. His identification changes. We celebrated baptism this morning. As you see Saul baptized. What you're seeing when someone is baptized is a statement that I now identify with Jesus Christ. I don't identify as the guy or girl who is gossipy, prideful, lustful, greedy, whatever it may be. I don't identify myself primarily by my tribe or my group. I identify myself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And an encounter with Jesus Christ changes not only the way Paul sees the world, but it changes the way the world sees Paul. His identity is now as a proclaimer of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever wanted to have a new identity. Maybe you wanted to go from at some point in your life being kind of a preppy kid to sort of being a party kid or vice versa. Maybe you wanted to be known as more studious or less studious. Maybe you wanted to be known as the tall person, right? That's been my lifelong dream. I want to be known as the tall guy, right? Uh, When I was in college, my freshman year, I had this acquaintance. His name was Matt. Matt was a relatively well-groomed individual, studious, kind of quiet. We went away for the summer. We came back. And his appearance had totally changed. He had piercings all over and was tattooed. His hair was many different colors. And we said, hey, Matt, looks like it was an eventful summer for you. And he said, my name is not Matt, it's Dave. And I said, well, what do you mean it's Dave? Like your name is Matt, right? No, it's now Dave. 
And for the rest of our college career, as far as I know, he went by Dave. He decided that Matt no longer encapsulated who he was. So he changed his appearance and he changed his name. And he said, I am Dave. Now, the problem is what? All of the transformation was external. I can change my skin. I can change my hair. I can change my accent or my clothes. But it's all on the outside. And apart from the transformation of God through Jesus Christ, I'm still the same inside. With all of my sin and insecurity and fear, I still identify myself apart from Jesus Christ with all of those things that separate me from him. And yet the transformation that God brings about in Paul's life is this permanent, deep, indwelling transformation. It's such a change in identity, such a change in perspective that there are even commentators who do not believe in Jesus, but who for some reason write about the Bible that will say, Paul must have had like an epileptic seizure or a stroke or maybe ate a bad taco. Who knows, right? Here's the problem. For 30 more years, this man preaches Jesus. He writes some of the most eloquent, well-worded defenses of the gospel we've ever seen. And then he's martyred for his faith in Jesus. Because everything about the way he sees himself has been transformed. This is not some sort of weird hallucination. This is the thing that only happens by the power of God. If you know Jesus this morning, your identity is no longer primarily with sin and death. It's no longer primarily with those struggles that you wrestle with, although those may continue to be an issue for your whole life. It's no longer primarily in your job or your political party or even Texas A&M. It's primarily in Jesus Christ. If you do not know him yet this morning, the message for you is that Jesus died for your sin and rose again so that you can now be connected to him so that the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about your life can change because now you know that only in him you have life that goes on forever and ever and he has adopted you as his child. And he wants you to be with him. And so your identity is now Child of God, friend of Jesus, servant of the risen King. And so Paul's identity and identification changes him because of an encounter with Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he has a brand new mission. Look at the second half of verse 19. I'm just going to read down through verse 22. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. 
All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. All of a sudden he moves his mission from the destruction of the church to the building of the church and he immediately begins to preach, Jesus is the Christ, I was wrong to the extent that people initially don't believe him. What happened to this guy? And they're nervous to let him in. And you'll see later, Barnabas actually brings him in and introduces him to the apostles because they cannot believe the level of transformation that has happened in this man's life. He has a brand new mission. And over the course of the next several decades, uh, Paul goes throughout all of the known world to proclaim the gospel. He leaves his home. He leaves his family. He leaves his well-entrenched position in the Jewish council. And he goes throughout all of the known world to proclaim Jesus. Here's a map of his third missionary journey. And I don't know how well you can see it from where you are. But over on the right part of the screen, he starts here first in Antioch. And by the time of his third missionary journey, he makes his way through Asia Minor. He gets all the way over into Macedonia, down into Greece. Eventually, he's going to get back to Jerusalem and then finally is martyred in Rome. And he goes over and over and over and over again. To proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles. This man who believed that Gentiles were always destined for separation from God. F.F. Bruce says, No single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. He sees Jesus and it totally wrecks him. And for the rest of his life, he says, I want the world to know him. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that, maybe not even a spiritual moment, but just in your life where your mission, your actions, your perspective changed. I began with an illustration of how Shannon's culinary tastes changed over time being married to me. But I also found that pretty quickly after we started dating and I fell in love with Shannon and I thought, this is the person I want to marry. What I found was that my actions changed. Why? Because I was now on a new mission to get her to marry me. So I cleaned my car and vacuumed it. (laughs) You know what? She never told me to do it. Why did I do it? Because I wanted her to ride in a clean car. I took a few more showers. I made meals, even though they were macaroni and cheese. My actions actually changed. Not because she made me. Not because she communicated to me that her love for me was contingent upon what I did for her. But because I loved her. And I wanted to know her. And I wanted her to want to be near me. And I wanted to be near her. When Paul meets Jesus, the reason he changes his perspective and his mission is not because he's trying to earn the love of God. It's because he sees what Jesus has done for him. And he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings so that I can be conformed to his death. In other words, he says, I will follow Jesus to the death because of what he did for me. 
And so his mission changes. As you look at Colossians chapter 1, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. In other words, his mission in life is to preach the word of God until everybody has heard or he dies. And Paul leaves churches in his wake all across the Roman world because he loves Jesus. And as he hits the end of his life, He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He finished well. He did not do the things he did because he felt he had to earn the love and grace of God. That was why he followed the law. No. Paul did what he did because he had been given the love and grace of God and he had encountered it in the person of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of his life, he proclaimed this. There is one way to know him and it's faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Over and over and over and over. He'll beat that drum. And his mission is transformed. You and I often, I think, come into a place like this and we sing songs of worship to God and we open up his word, his word where there is life and we pray and through prayer we have access to the spirit of God. And yet we walk away unchanged. And I think we genuinely believe in Jesus Christ, most of us in this room, and we know and we have eternal security and we know that we're destined for eternal life. But I think on a week to week, day to day basis, we don't pause to really encounter him and to leave a room like this and say, God, through the power of your spirit, how do you want my perspective my understanding of my identity and my mission to transform so that then when I go out of here, And I engage with my annoying neighbor, my challenging coworker, my frustrating family. I bring the love of Jesus and I pray for them and I pray for me. And I trust that you can transform us. Do you believe this morning that Jesus can transform your life and the lives of those you know? That when you walk out of here, Hopefully you haven't just heard a couple of good songs and an okay sermon, but as you walk out of here, you've met with the risen Savior and you're never the same. It's what happened to Paul. I believe it's what God wants for us as he communicates his love, mercy, and grace to us. Pray with me and then Zach is going to give us some practical ways to apply this passage throughout the coming weeks. Would you pray? Father, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for your spirit. We pray, change us into the image of Jesus Christ. Not because we're trying to earn your approval, but because you've given it to us. Fill our hearts with love for you. 
as you love us. As we sang earlier, teach us how to love like you loved us first. And then allow us to move into our world and proclaim the name of the one who has given us life. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.